you know, it, it was bound to happen. Uh, and we have we have a third wheel this week. I, I, I hate to admit <laughs> it, but this is this is what happens in times of pandemic. Third wheel, go ahead and introduce yourself. Uh, let's see if the if the dating game contestants can guess who you are. Where do you come from? You know, as somebody who's never been married, who tends to just be the third wheel every time he's invited out on a Friday and Saturday night because, like, the guy and the girl are going out. I got nothing to do. I'll be the third wheel. Maybe the girl will, will be, be my wingman at the bar or the restaurant. I am used to being called the third wheel, Wade. So okay. thank you for not only uh, having me back on the show, but also reminding me of a personal failure in my life, <laughs> which is never having a date or getting married and being single forever. There we go. Uh, well, Tim and I want to welcome you back to the show. Mark, hey, Mark. Good to have you. Oh, it's great to be back. It is great to be back. And by the way, folks, you can't see this, but uh, we are recording on Zencaster, but we can all see each other on Skype. It's a, it's either a miracle of modern technolo- technology or it's Frankenstein. So Wade, I can see, seems to be in his garage. Yeah. <gasps> Uh, and uh, Tim, you seem to be in in, in, in your home, just in, uh, in the in studio, home. baby, in Marengo House. Okay. So anyway, you know, I wanted to uh, I wanted to start the show off by reading. You know, there there was a thing that happened this last week. There was a rumor, and then about forty eight hours later, the rumor was confirmed, which is that Disney and they can always change their minds on this. We know how they change their minds, but Disney is is going to no longer release four K UHD Blu rays of its catalog titles it's live action catalog titles which means alien the sound of music all all that fox stuff as well as likely old classic uh disney stuff like Twenty Thousand leagues under the sea and the swiss family robinson none of that will ever see a, a a 4k release and so this is a very disappointing thing a lot of people feel like disney's trying to use their weight to crush 4k and force people onto streaming and uh, there was a really great post on the on the Facebook page from uh, longtime listener Daniel Sibner, who said, and I want to read his entire post because I think it's it just sums up what we're all feeling, and then we'll have a little discussion about it. He says, "Here's what really bugs me: the decline in physical media sales has really been based on the idea that more people are turning to digital, but digital wasn't something that the public adopted naturally like they ever did with physical media. Studios slowly declined to want to manufacture physical media." In order to skimp on cost and distribution, special features started dwindling years ago during the almost 10-year mark of Blu-ray. Been to a Best Buy or Target or any other retail store within the last few years? The shelves are never stocked, organized, or maintained in any way. There's been an active push to get rid of physical media, despite the fact that people still come in looking for it. The public has, from the get-go, been fed a false bill of goods, being convinced that digital is the better way to go, thinking that digital is some sort of permanent ownership, which it's not. How many collectors have had friends or family members make the argument, but it's all online. It's all on Netflix. It looks just as good while streaming. This was not a conclusion they came to on their own. Businesses led them to believe that was the fact, stating things like, there are over 100,000 blah, blah, blah number of movies on their services. When you honestly can't find anything most of the time, it never looks as good as when being played from a physical disc, not uh, nighttime scenes, hello, It's never true 4K because whose bandwidth is that good? And no, it's not all online. And even if there are a lot of movies on any service, any one service, they all eventually get yanked because of licensing deals. The public never abandoned or lost interest in physical media because they decided to do so on their own. Like Companies like Disney pushed the idea 
because it meant they didn't have to be the bad guy when they stopped putting the, putting in the effort. People would believe they were getting just as much, if not more, with streaming. And the biggest hypocrisy? The Disney Movie Club, holding specific titles hostage under an exclusive distribution plan that requires collectors to spend more and more money. Anyone else remember Columbia House? Why have such a specific, <laughs> exclusive setup for physical media if deep down you don't see the profit in it? If anything, I hope Disney becomes quite frivolous while sh with sharing their distribution licenses, both theirs and the Fox titles, with the top boutique companies. I'd much rather Criterion or Arrow or Keener Lorber or Oliver Shout put out their catalog titles. More special features and probably because they don't have all of the other stuff to worry about. Much better remasters. Apologies for the rant, but collecting physical media is one of the few things that brings me joy in this messed up world at the moment. As I know, it, uh, it brings all of you joy as well. It's annoying when our hobby is threatened to become extinct or at least throttled in some major way simply because of what the mass audiences blindly choose to do. Okay, I need a drink. Thank you for allowing me to vent long live physical media. And thank you, Daniel Sibner, because that just perfectly crystallized all of my thoughts as well. Tim, Mark, weigh in. Uh, go, go, Mark. Well, I, I think it's interesting that he makes a lot of amazing points that I completely agree with. And what's interesting is that you have a guy who all and all of us are the same. All we want to do is spend our own money to buy these products that they made that we love. But they're saying, nah, we don't want you to do that. It's almost like you're there. It's almost a, a personal rejection of what you're trying to accomplish. We just spend your own hard-earned money because you love them so much. You want to put them in your home and own them forever. But they're saying, no, nah, we reject yep. that. We're yep. slapping you down. And the thing is that it's ultimately all about control. You know, if you buy the disc, you bought it once and you could have 50 people come over to your home and watch it. And they all watch it for basically free because you just bought it once. But if it's in digital, you've got to pay your, your 10 bucks a month for Disney Plus or for whatever it might be. They feel like they can control it more and monetize it better if it's, if it's under their roof. And that the idea that we have it, we bought it once, we own it forever, just scares them. Because it's not monetizable once it's in my house. Yeah, Tim? that ongoing income stream. That's what they want. Uh, I'm going to make you pay for Aladdin forever. Uh, and uh, every, every other title in the library. That's what the dynamic is all about so far as the company is concerned. And then there are we who are stuff people. I'm a stuff person. I like my stuff. Uh, uh, I have actual albums, which are coming back, by the way. So the notion that everything should go on to the cloud or wherever it is, and it, no, that's a bad thing. I want my stuff. I want it in the best possible condition, and I want it now. And see, I always, because I am fundamentally fatalistic and because I come from the church of George Miller, I know that there will be a Mad Max future in which there will be no more cloud, there will be no more streaming, there will just be me out in the middle of the Australian outback with a bunch of, you know, half-naked zombies uh, <laughs> bicycling to provide power, and that's the only way I'll be able to watch my movies. I will need my physical media at that point in time. Because that, again, you know, when the zombies are bicycling to provide power, that's the only way I can watch a movie. You but know, will you be drinking true. your own urine? Will you be <laughs> like Waterworld where he urinates and then he pedals and it turns into drinkable water? Will you be doing that, Wade? And you know what? And honestly, will you enjoy it? Because I think you uh, would. I probably would. Yeah, I probably would. I I'm sure I now. would. <laughs> a little squirt of Mio, fruit punch Mio. You're good to go. 
Yeah, well, yeah, anyway, but this it's a hell of a thing. It's a hell of a thing. Uh, and I do lament that we're moving into this world where everything that we quote unquote own will become digital. By the way, I've already lost uh, a few movies that I've downloaded on Amazon Prime, bought the movie, downloaded it. I go back and look and that movie's not there anymore, you know, it, it, because they lost the whatever, whatever. So that I've already experienced the yeah. fact that that does not work. Yep. It's, it's, uh, I think a lot of people are going to be very sobered with it. But I will say this the two heavy hitters right now, even though 4K UHD is a Sony technology, Sony has not gotten as far as behind the technology as they should have. But Warner Brothers has. And Warner Brothers uh, is the other, you know, 800 pound gorilla out there with, with uh, HBO Max, which we'll talk about again in a second. Uh, and um, they are, you know, they just announced Full Metal Jacket on 4K coming out later this year. Hey, you know, that's a catalog title. They've done Bridge in the River Kwai, you know, they've done they 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 did 2001 recently. So they understand that that they understand what Disney clearly does not or doesn't want to. And so uh despite the fact that there were 800 layoffs, by the way, at uh, at Warner Brothers on Monday, everyone that we know got, still has their jobs, but um you know, they are trying to sort of reduce that debt and they're 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 trying to AT&T is slashing away, but there is still uh, a faith in the catalog at Warner Brothers. So I think we can hope that that will offset whatever Disney does. Um, so anyway, well, it, it, the the, uh, the other thing is that, uh, speaking of Warner Brothers, the uh, HBO Max, they added uh, a, a warning introduction to Blazing Saddles, just like they did with Gone with the Wind. Mm-hmm. Um, apparently there are some people who do not understand that Blazing Saddles is not a drama uh, <laughs> and, and needed to have the jokes explained to them. I... I think we all kind of saw that coming, but um, really, it's blazing saddles, people. It's not. It's not gone with the wind. Well, yeah, he, satire, he, he, I think, is a completely different uh, subject when it comes yeah. to these sort of uh, gone with the wind. That was a necessary thing. It was a good thing. Blazing saddles. Cleavon Little in the nineteen what seventies, seventies, yeah. late seventies, yeah. seventy one, um, seventy two, whatever. Seventy one, seventy two. Every very sophisticated black man. He knows what he's doing. He understands the context of the humor that the wonderful Mel Brooks is communicating. Yeah, well, I mean, and 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 as Robert Downey Jr. has talked about with uh, with respect to uh, Tropic Thunder, the whole point of those jokes is to underline how wrong the stuff is that they're making fun of. Yeah, that's the whole point of it. So it it does concern me a little bit that some of the the corporate suits uh, are have so little faith in the power of satire and comedy and what it's intended to do that they are afraid that there are people out there who will take the jokes literally as opposed to for what they actually mean well there uh, are <laughs> but i know and that's a problem I, I i don't know if um, a common denominator did people here's the thing did i don't know that people complain and no. then the studio reacted to it no. the studio is trying to get in front of something they are. They that are. maybe is not an issue yeah. but it become but they don't want to take the chance that it becomes an issue because some idiot out there That's gets it. insulted by what by such and such because they're stupid. That's it. That's it for sure. That's and it. And also, I will say this not to defend them, but I would say that if just like Spielberg turning you know guns into what in, for ET, right? Didn't he turn uh, the cops? Uh, he CGI'd their guns and turned them into flowers or something. clubs or something like that. Plowshares, yeah. swords into plowshares. No, yeah. you know, remember in ET there was a big thing where where ET was re released. Now you're making me Skype it. Come on, guys. Blue, uh, uh, digigods.com. E.T. Yeah. Spielberg turns uh, guns into what? <laughs> oh, you're killing me. 
you remember this when they released ET on Blu-ray yeah, with the guns, with the guns, and they yeah. took they they, they took they the took walk, the they made the walkie-talkies. Thank yeah. you. So it's not like they are censoring Blazing Saddles or bleeping it or taking scenes out. True. They're keeping the movie as it is on the site, but they are trying to get ahead of a a very scary phenomenon, you know, which is the whole cancel culture and the yeah. sensitivity and and the wokeness of it. They're trying to get in front of all that, whether it's necessary or not. And we can argue the fact whether or not wokeness and whatnot is a good thing or a bad thing. It's gone too far, blah, blah, blah. But but ultimately, the movie will still exist in its it original will. form on the site. Well, we, we'll, we will keep our eye on it. I think it's, uh, it's, it's sad, but kind of funny in its own weird way. Uh, it's, it's just it's a funny introduction. You, 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 I mean... God bless her. She's she's kind of trying to take it seriously, but then you you, you get in the movie. You're like, it's just just silly. Walkie talkies, <laughs> people, because you, Wade and Tim hung me out to dry on the first show I've done in like three years. <laughs> make that he turned their guns into walkie talkies in yeah. the re-release. Uh, we there we could kind of remember things a long time ago, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> Anymore, we look it all up. Well, uh, let's. Let, let's let's dive into some of the DVDs. Uh, we haven't talked about docs in a long time. I'm just going to hit a few of these real here real quickly. And by the way, at the end of the show, I, I've pre-recorded a, a segment on anime, so I don't force Tim and Mark to suffer through me rambling about all the anime stuff. So <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna there's a, there's a pre-record segment at the end of the show. Hope everybody sticks around for it. It's a lot of fun. We've not done anime in a long time, and there's been a lot of great stuff the past few months. By the way, by the way, before you start, I have to say that it makes me feel good that after all these years and years of not doing the show, you still are so stuck in your ways that you still start <laughs> the show talking about movies that nobody cares about, which is documentaries. That's right. Well, you know what? The first one I'm going to talk about, James Cameron's Story of Science Fiction, uh, which is from AMC. This aired on AMC. This is actually really, really good. And I know I've been really critical of Cameron over the years, but... Um, this gets into he actually is is very very eloquent in uh, looking at the the value of science fiction as speculative fiction what it means for the movies what it means for art in general it's really it's it's quite good and uh, there are a lot of other people in here there's you know Spielberg and Lucas and uh, Christopher Nolan and even Schwarzenegger they all show up Guillermo del Toro comes in so I mean it's more than just Cameron it's it's uh, mm. it's really really very very interesting I like and, the way uh, I like the way that movie works its way over the decades and it shows how the science fiction moved close to the science exactly. and further away from the fiction that's what, so by the time we hit the late uh, I don't know 60 Kubrick 2001 yep. he's trying to get it right yeah uh, and not making crap up and 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 it and it becomes mainstream you know it's a, it's a really really good doc we've also got uh, you don't know me Know me spelled N O M I, and you all know what that means. Oh, showgirls, baby. Okay, Mark, tell us about your showgirl because you and I sat right next to each other when we at the press screening of Showgirls at the now uh, demolished National Theater where I used to work. You, midway through the movie, were curled in a fetal position, <laughs> moaning, physically moaning in the seat. And I'm not exaggerating. You get way more a kick out of that story than I do, but but, <laughs> but just by the way. This is before this was the cast and crew screening, so it was before anybody knew that the yeah. movie was going to be this historic train wreck. True, true. So it wasn't like I was just buying into the pre release or whatever, trying to be hip with the crowd who hated it. It was awful. As one of the first people to see the film in its entirety, it was really that bad. And yes, I was curled up in a ball at some point. It was so funny. It was just so priceless to see Mark in a fetal position. 
Oh my gosh. Anyway, this is all about the aftertaste of the film. The 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 it's long tail that it has had as a cult a pop culture phenomenon and how it has become like a cult film and it's almost like a rocky horror level of fanaticism about it. It's really really uh, a very very good doc. It's very interesting. And uh, I got, you know, uh, my wife actually was was part of the uh, the after the fact accounting team that came in to kind of clean up the books from Showgirls, which went on for at least a year after it was out of theaters. And so um, we, we actually have a bit of a history with that thing. And so it, it, it just lives constantly. I'm ever aware of the damn thing. You know about that um, doc? What I like about that doc is it. It doesn't. It doesn't so much uh, rehabilitate the film, but, but reconsider it. It puts it in a different context. It says, "Let's yeah. look at this film this way." And if you look at it this way, it doesn't make it a better film, but it makes it a more insightful film that we might yep. have thought about in 1995. The other thing that it True. does is it does, in fact, rehabilitate uh, young Elizabeth Berkeley. The one thing that I never got way back then oh, is the way so people shattered. attacked her. I didn't get that. I'm like, yeah. she gave herself to Verhoeven. Uh, and said, well, you know, what do you want me to do? And and he said, do it like this. And she said, okay. And and did it that way. And we kick her in the face for 25 the, years? I don't get poor that. Girl, that was kind of the poor girl had only done Saved by the Bell, the worst sitcom in history. <laughs> and a three-camera television sitcom. And Paul Verhoeven, A-list director, says... I would like for you to be in my big feature film written by Joe Esterhaas. How is she supposed to say no to that? Yeah. I mean, seriously. It took a lot of she bravery. There's a whole lot of naked in that movie. And she yeah. did it well. Note that we move forward 25 years of the Fifty Shades of Grey movies. A whole lot of naked in that movie. We don't beat her up for those bad movies no. the way we did Elizabeth Berkeley 25 years ago. I don't get no. it. I agree. Uh, we've also got uh, The Kingmaker, which is a Showtime documentary about Imelda Marcos, who feels like uh, ancient history now. Um, uh, they tried to peddle this to us for uh, LAFCA Awards last year. I don't know that it's a really great documentary. It feels like it's trying to sort of uh, redeem her or at least earn some sympathy a little bit. But I kind of feel like, uh, you know, Imelda's not doing so bad. She's not hurting. She's not, you know, a Twitter phenomenon, but that's not my fault. Um so that's there for those who are interested. Any of you guys familiar with the with the doc A Bigger Splash on David Hockney from 1974? I don't know that one. I am not, although I do love the film A Bigger Splash with um what is that from? Ray Fines. Ray yeah, Fines. So yeah. good. Yeah, this is this is not that this is not that bigger splash. By, by, uh, yeah, no, this is this is a 1974 uh documentary that apparently was a really big deal at the time and uh I never, I'd never heard of it. Obviously, you know, I'm. Uh, what, what am I doing watching films with, you know, about artists with LGBT under themes in 1974? Not nothing. I want to watch Star Trek. So, um, but this is actually really, really interesting. Uh, I, I, I know nothing about David Hockney other than his paintings, and so this is a really, really interesting artifact. It's fully restored. They did a really great job. This is from Kino Lorber and Metrograph Pictures. And uh, it really is a, a landmark film. It's a fascinating uh, uh, snippet of, of time and place and gives you an amazing insight, not just into uh, his work, but his life at the time. And uh, uh, Peter Schlesinger, who, you know, was kind of his artistic muse and, uh, and lover. And it's really, it's really quite an interesting film. So a bigger splash about David Hockney and then just a couple of little docs here that 
are worth mentioning. Got three uh, from First Run Features. Graves Without a Name by uh, Riti Pan, who is sort of the only name Cambodian filmmaker in the world. He made a film that I once saw at the Cannes Film Festival called Rice People. He has since moved away from narratives and primarily now makes documentaries about Cambodian history and the Khmer Rouge and the Killing Fields. And um, they are all amazing and powerful. And it's a real document about his, 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 his country and their, their painful, bloody history. So uh, this one is called Graves Without a Name. And uh, it goes along with all of Riti Pan's other recent uh, documentaries in about the last five, six, eight, ten years. And uh, in this case, this is, again, the Khmer Rouge era and um, specifically looking at a, a beginning with the exploration with a child, 13-year-old child whose, whose family was killed. It's really, really quite a devastating film made two years ago in 2018. We also have an immigration doc called Colossus, Indivisible with, uh, Without Liberty and Justice for All. This is a Jonathan Scheinberg documentary um, that looks at, uh, at one family's immigration ordeal and um, kind of uses it as a prism through which to look at the current immigration situation, which is, it, you know, it's a good doc. It's a little bit politicized, but not too much. It's, it's good for discussion. And then the, uh, the last one is Sea Drift, uh, which is by a filmmaker named Tim Tsai, T-S-A-I. And uh, this, this is, a, it, takes, it starts in 1979, after the fall of Saigon, uh, a few years later, uh, when obviously Vietnamese came to the United States, many refugees, and then just a few years later in 1979, um, there's a killing where a Vietnamese refugee uh, kills a crab fisherman in a town in Texas called Seadrift. Seadrift is the name of the town. And that gets into this unbelievable, this ex- that, that one incident explodes into this horrible racial thing that gets into class and culture and race and the kkk becomes a part of it and it's just this awful awful uh episode in uh, in the history of this one town and in the history of of um of texas and uh, i didn't know about this story um but it's actually quite fascinating you know we're accustomed to um southeast asian communities in los angeles and, and orange county most of them came here and they settled so vietnamese cambodian laotian uh, those communities are a part of uh, Southern California uh, tapestry. They're part of the San Gabriel Valley. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that there were communities in Texas, and I didn't know that these things happened. So that's a good film, Sea Drift. You might want to check that out. All right, let's move into some other stuff, guys. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, you want ready. to do new movies? Yeah, let's do it. Uh, new movies. There are far and few between right now. So what I've been doing is looking at what these movies are about, and then trying to decide whether or not they would be theatrically releasable uh, in this in this day and age, depending on what they're about. So, you know, uh, some of them, yes, some of them, no. Uh, those who, who deserve to die. Uh, so this is just a, you know, a little thriller about this veteran who comes home. He wants to get his stuff together. He has these sort of family situations that he has to deal with. Uh, and a, a whole bunch of people get killed. There's nobody particularly big in it. Uh, Wade, what do you think? It, would this possibly be a theatrically releasable movie if there were theaters. I do not. You know what? No, I don't. I feel like this would be a, a VOD thing. IFC might pump this out into a, a few little art houses, but I, I don't. I think this belongs uh, VOD. Yeah, mostly a horror movie. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, something like that. There's an Adam Agoyan film. Uh, oh, Mark, Mark and I are going to get into this one. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, you know, Adam was quite the guy back in the day. This one's called Guest of Honor. What do you think, Mark? 
You know, I am a huge fan. I am one of the many trillions of people who was so on board and loved Begoyan so much based on his salad days that we all know about. And we keep waiting for him, film after film, to return to what we love. And I have to say, when I settled into Guest of Honor, uh, thinking to myself, okay, maybe this is the one where he'll get himself back on track. Unlike Wade, I have to say, I just think this thing is, its to me, it was a bit of a mess. It started out great, interesting character, David Thewlis, um, Luke Wilson, it's got a good cast. It just feels very scattershot to me. It never really came together thematically. I enjoyed bits and pieces of it, but as a whole, it never really came together. And, and again, I am rooting for him so much. I just feel like maybe the best I can say about this film is that it's not a return to form for him, but it could be that intermediate step where the next film he gets back on track. Because I'm starting to feel it again here with him, even if I'm not feeling, feeling it again in total. Wait. See, I thought I really think he's back in form here. I think this film got a little bit unfairly maligned. I what I used to love about Egoyan before he went off the rails, um, <laughs> starting starting with the uh, the serial killer thing with Ian Holm. What was that called? Uh, that was kind of the one where everything went a little bit astray. But this is this is for me is like it's starting to get back to his form of the of the early '90s, where he's focusing. He's, and this is a little bit like a sister film to The Adjuster. He's looking at these really unusual occupations, and it's one of these occupational dramas. He's back to moving all over the place in the timeline, nonlinear, jumping and all over the place. Um, but David Thewlis as a food inspector who has died, and now there's a uh, you know there's there's we're sort of learning about his life through a conversation between his daughter, who is somewhat estranged, and the priest who is supposed to sort of officiate his funeral. And we're finding out, and all of these things are kind of laid out very, very carefully. And I think Thulis is brilliant. I think looking at his life through the, the incredibly weird and obsessive practices of a food inspector, I thought was just fascinating. I've never seen a movie about a food inspector. This is the first one. Yeah. It's gotta, I give it some props for that. Well, I've never seen a film that is so muddled and murky and half-baked about a film ins uh, food inspector yeah. that much. Uh, anyway, I was I was rooting for it all the way. I was rooting for it all the way as a huge, huge fan. Um, in fact, my uh, you know Severine, my now ex girlfriend, Severine earned her PhD with a paper about music in Agoyan's films. Oh no, kidding! Hmm. Oh, that's that was how she earned her PhD. Isn't that crazy? Well, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, there were some amazing films. The Sweet Half there, Hereafter, all those wonderful films from the like early, mid, late '90s. Uh, by the time you get to the, I don't know, early 2000s or so, I'm kind of done with Adam McGoyan. I did like Chloe and Adoration, though. I think those were in the middle 2000s. Yeah, well, Ararat, yeah, yeah. Was, Ararat was the one that should have been like this knockout punch, that been it. personal story, right? And Ararat, it, it has moments. It has moments of power when he's, he's going through the, uh, he's going through like the airport scanner. Remember this year he's going through the airport but scanner? And looking at his luggage, it just, it, it should have been, it, that movie should have been a knockout. It should have been such a personal, do, powerful statement. It just wasn't. Do we agree that Rock Bottom was what lies beneath? Do, yeah, do that we, was the, Interesting. That yeah, that's the one I was looking at right here. Yeah. Oh, it's such a dreadful film. You know, we also got a film this week, Automation. Either of you seen Automation? Uh, that's the one about the killer robot? That's the one. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, you know what? This is, a, this is actually a really, really fun film. This is on Blu-ray from Epic. Uh, it is a low-budget sci-fi film, but it's not 
it's not that low budget. Like there's there's some investment in special effects and whatnot, and it's meant to be kind of funny. This is um, kind of like they it. They've been trying to peddle it like Office Space meets Ro- uh, RoboCop. It's got more going on. There's a there's more stuff happening here, but it definitely has the RoboCop element. This is like uh, it's a it's a really interesting satire on um, workplace automation and and people being replaced by robots. And in this case, there's this business that has this robot, and he's just kind of a service drone, and he walks around. It's a guy in a suit. It's a guy in a really weird looking robot suit. Walks around, and everybody loves the robot. And now they're going to automate and they're going to let people go. But you know who else they're letting go? They're going to let the robot go because he's a prototype and they got a better model. And they picked on the wrong robot because he's not just a prototype drone at a business. This robot has a military history. So, of course, you, you know, all hell breaks loose. And yet very, very funny in, in all the ways that it needs to be without losing sight of the fact that what it's really doing is trying to get us to talk about what it means to replace workers. And whether or not it's worth it for the automation and the cheapness and the efficiency that we get out of it. Interesting discussion. And uh, they wrapped it up, I think, in a really, really smart little film. So uh, that is automation. Uh, it's worth checking out. Tim, good, good, other, good. New, other, other new movies. Deathstroke, the animation series. Deathstroke is out of the DC universe. Am I correct, Wade? You would yes, that is. Yes, Deathstroke. It's a, it's a, it's a, in fact, they were talking about Deathstroke being a Batman villain in some future Batman film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Michael Chiklis is doing the voice uh, uh, here in a fairly brutal hack and slash that I think appears on the CW Seed or nothing like that. What do we got here? The entire, uh, what? First this season? is this is this is a movie. This is just this is a specific animated movie called Knights and Dragons the movie, and um, there's n- only one little featurette on it as far as an extra. Uh, you know what? I'm not uh, huge on the whole Deathstroke thing. Um, it, it they're trying to go a, into a darker direction. It seems with a lot of these things. This is a Blu-ray DVD combo with uh, with a movies anywhere code on it. Uh, I don't know if the if going really super dark and and uh, and you know f- villain oriented is is the right direction for the DC universe. It's kind of yeah. like uh, Suicide Squad, right? Yeah. You know, you know what comedy down with these DC animated films are? They never look as good as the cover art. You look at the cover art and you're True. like. This is going to be badass. And then you look at the movie, and it was written by like some eight year old uh, with a crayon. <laughs> it's just not good. Like, why can't they make the movie look as good as the? It's all CGI anyway. I know. Just, okay, you know what? You know what? Video game has great. Um, oh, I'm going to forget it now. You know what? You guys are killing me. What is the? Uh, what? Is, okay, stop. Don't stop the recording. What is the? What is the DC video game where everybody looks really super real? Um, it's called DC like, video game. Um, Holly Hobby, <laughs> Injustice. Oh, okay, okay. It's called Injustice. There's a series of them, a series of DC video games called Injustice. I believe it's a it's a video game, um, and the characters look so real. They look way more real than any of these stupid Deathstroke movies. That's what they should be doing. It looks well, badass. You, you call them up. You tell them. You tell no, them, Mark. Let me, tell you something. let me tell you something. I recently got a new addition to the family. It is a 65-inch 4K Sony Bravia television. Good for you. And so it was given to me for free. It's for the super low, low price of free. And so I reconnected my PlayStation 4, which, of course, because I was living overseas for a couple of years, I didn't do any of that stuff. 
and I bought I bought two games. Wade and Tim. I, I know I'm an old man because <laughs> I because I, 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 I reconnected. I had a, I have a TV now. I reconnected my PlayStation Four. I bought Red Dead Redemption Two. Oh my Grand god! Five and a baseball game. And see, I thought you were going to say Ms. Pac-Man. You've disappointed me yet again. <laughs> That's just I, uh, you know, you, you Red better Dead Redemption uh, And we got we got we got one more new film here. Uh, the Wretched. Tim, do you know who the Pierce Brothers are? Oh, have you heard? Uh, of yeah, well, I, you know, I covered this film for Film Week. Um, so I know them to the extent that I did that. I tell you what, this is a fairly decent little movie. Well acted. Uh, it's a young boy. His parents are getting divorced. He's dealing with all that. There's this kid next door. He sort of builds a little relationship with this kid. Kid disappears. Nobody seems to understand that there, A, was a kid next door or B, that he's disappeared including the mother of that kid. Turns out there's a witch and a whole bunch of stuff involved. You know, it's really a sort of neat little horror thriller that I dug a little bit. Way to go, Mr. Pierce Brothers. Yeah, all right. And by, by the way, but, but, but before we continue, I have to say that when you said Pierce Brothers, you know, Pierce Brothers is a very famous mortuary in Westwood here in Los Angeles. Yeah. Uh, and, and I thought, wow, is this a documentary about the Pierce Brothers? Because, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of famous people buried in that mortuary. Yeah, that's, Matt, that's, that's where we had my father's Orbison. funeral. Really, Roy yeah. Orbison, Betty Page. Yeah. There's a lot of people buried in that in the Pierce Brothers mortuary. George True. C. Scott. Oh yeah, Ray Stark. So let let's uh, let's hit some criterion right now. Uh, actually, I'm going to make mention a couple of Flicker Alleys first because there's a couple of great titles from Flicker Alley. Marilyn uh, Monroe, by the way, Wade. Marilyn Monroe buried the Pierce Brothers. I, really, not and Jack Lemmon forever. And Jack Lemon or Forest Lawn. I'm thinking Forest Lawn. No, no, Westwood, right near where you near where you used to live, Tim. Right right over there. Wow, you know. Yeah. yeah, In the black community, of course, it was always the Inglewood uh, Cemetery, where Uh, my parents are buried. So it's it's just a really sort of interesting thing. Very famous. By the way, that hop guys. That that Inglewood Cemetery, which also is where I believe uh, uh, isn't is Tom Bradley buried there. It's not, yes, might, definitely. I think he might be, definitely. and I think I think Ray Charles is there as well. Yeah, um, there are a lot of old movie stars from the from the thirties. I think who are also there. My parents are there, and and the that that big splashy new complex that used to be the sports arena is going up right next door. Exactly. Yeah. So it's going to be all gentrified and whatnot. Uh, Flickr Alley's got a couple of really interesting titles. One is from Nicholas Winding Refn got behind presenting this. This is Spring Night, Summer Night. Um, kind of an unusual thing for Flickr Alley because it's not a silent film. Uh, it's from 1967. It's not a silent era movie. It's a 1967 movie. And um, it really kind of uh, a a fascinating uh, artifact that I was not familiar with. Um, they've, they've restored it. And uh, this is kind of like a, a, a neorealist um american independent film from uh 1967 and um you can see what what uh nicholas winning reffin is really into with this uh it's it's got a it's got a really grungy new wave kind of uh kitchen sink realism vibe going it doesn't feel of the era but it's really it's really a, a kind of a remarkable discovery so it is it's really worth checking out. Give it, give it a look if you like that particular era of European film. This is kind of like Bergman meets uh, neorealism, and and you know uh, meets a little bit of maybe a little bit of surrealism. All kind of export. Lots of extras here. Really, really very interesting stuff on the history of the film. It is spring night, summer night. 
And then there's also, Mark will have a joke about this, from 1924, The City Without Jews, uh, which is... Uh, it it's was the story restored. of every city ever. <laughs> I knew you'd have a joke. Uh, and uh, this is based on a, uh, a very, very controversial 1924 um, uh, novel. And uh, it's kind of this... Um, it, it, in, a, in a way, it is, it is terrifying how this... Pre, how this is almost prophetic of many aspects of the Holocaust and uh, and what was eventually going to happen. And there's a lot of great bonus materials that are kind of uh, added to this that speak to that, uh, the the role of Jews in Europe and whatnot. Um, it's really, really fascinating. It's 91 minutes. It's an Austrian film from 1924, directed by H.K. Breslauer. Really, really worth checking out. Restored beautifully. Uh, the City Without Jews. So Criterion Films. Let's talk first for a second. Criterion has has announced that there's going to be a uh, a relatively complete Fellini set coming out for the holidays, which we will cover on the holiday show. Um, not every Fellini film, but all the major ones that have been previously released by Criterion, including a few new ones. And um, kind of anticipating that, we have this amazing box, the complete films of Agnes Varda. Ah. Who is a big? Who's very popular with the LA Film Critics Association? We she we've given her a few awards. I think a couple of awards, haven't we? Didn't we give her a couple of awards? Mm, yeah, we we lost her what two years ago after that uh, Faces like, in Places around that time. It was yeah, that was it was pretty much right after that. Um, yeah, uh, and it, this is all of her films, and it is quite extraordinary. I mean, there's something like what eighteen films or somewhat uh, twenty films. I forget exactly how many. But it's, uh, oh, 39 films, including shorts. So 39 films all together, mm. including the really amazing stuff, Vagabond, uh. Uh, Cleo from 5 to 7, um, and then all of the uh, Kung Fu Master, which is really, really good with uh, Charlotte Gainsbourg. And then all the recent stuff like uh, Varda by Agnes, Faces Places, The Beaches of Agnes, The Gleaners and I, all those kinds of interesting career retrospectives. Um, Guys, sum up Agnes Varda for the listeners, why she matters. Woman, making movies. Yeah. At, that At a time. time. Uh, yeah. Particularly, you know, early on there. And, you know, she had, a, she had a unique and singular voice. When we think of Godard, we think of Truffaut, we think of all those folks. Uh, we think about what they do. You can do the same thing with Agnes. Um, um, she has a style of filmmaking. Um, and um, it's seminal. Well, she also took a lot from her life, you know, in terms of the movies, that, especially the documentaries, right? Her own experiences and the life she lived and especially a lot of women's stories. You know, I think that for that time, that was very unique and a, and a, and a needed voice, especially in the French New Wave, which was really mostly notable for women in front of the camera, not behind the camera. Mm. And Anise also looked beyond herself, even beyond just France. I mean, a film like Black Panther, 1968, you know, the... 50 years ago, uh, to to engage in that culture that's not her culture and halfway across the world. Uh, it, she didn't have to do that, but she could see the entire world. And I like the way she, so I, I, that's, a, that's a really amazing film, Black Panther. Chloe is still my favorite New Wave film. I'm going to say it. It's my favorite New Wave film, putting it out it, there. It's, it's really great. It's the movie that kind of uh, intoxicates a lot of critics. I, I know Peter DeBruge and, and Justin Chang, uh, two of our colleagues, they, they particularly love it as well. Uh, Paul Schrader made a movie called The Comfort of Strangers in, right. uh, in 1990, which I don't think anybody ever expected would become a Criterion edition. And yet 
Here we are. <laughs> uh, the Comfort of Strangers. Uh, Harry Hill Tanger did write that screenplay. Yeah, yeah, yeah I it, understand that. It's got a good cast, but uh, that movie, and it's Paul Schrader, but it does that, that movie never came together in any particular way that would warrant Criterion treatment. Yeah. Great cast. Well, you, you know what? It's a great cast. Helen uh, Mirren. Christopher Walken, Helen Mirren, Rupert Everett, Natasha Richardson. And it also has some amazing contributors. Dante Spinotti and Angelo Badalamente did the uh, cinematography or the, the score. Uh, Dante Spinotti shot it. Um, it's, it, it is a, it's a, yes, it's very much a Harold Pinter a- adaptation of an Ian McEwan novel. It's, um, it feels like a, like a Bunuel film in many respects, a, a study of class and manners that, um, all taking place on a, on a holiday in Venice where he, it's all sort of about the politics of human relationships and, I, I, you never quite feel like Schrader quite gets it, but at the same time, it's really interesting that all these people did come together on this one film, and it didn't didn't quite fire on all cylinders. Tons of new uh, new interviews here with everybody involved, um, including Christopher Walken, which is who's always just why is here. Let me just take it aside. Why is Christopher Walken so damn entertaining? Why why <laughs> seriously? What it is about Christopher Walken that we all love so much? Uh... It's the voice, and man, you know it's funny with the voice. A lot of it's the voice. The mannerisms, and don't forget, you know, when Christopher Walken goes through a script, and I've I've heard him say this: when when Walken goes through a script, he will take out all the periods mm. in his dialogue. And when you realize that, you think to yourself, that's why his line readings are so odd, because he is giving it whatever little jazzy cadence he wants to give it, not based on whatever the punctuation might be. Let, let me tell you, I did the I did the the. Um... Uh, oh gosh, what am I? I'm drawing a blank now. The the uh, the Tony Scott uh, Tarantino film. Um, uh, True Romance. True Romance. So I did the True Romance junket, and Christopher Walken is there, dressed all in black. And I remember one of the one of the first questions. Don't even remember who did it. Tim, you know all these people. They they they, they ask these dumb <laughs> questions. And they just drag a junket all the way down. They kill press days. And this one person said to him, "Why do you always wear black?" And Christopher Walken, I, it was perfect. It was like it had been scripted for him. He sat there, he cocked his head, he smiled. It was perfect Jack Benny timing, like really long. He smiled and he looked up and he goes, it's clean. That was it. That was the answer. That was the so answer. Wait, so black is clean or black is clean or that particular black outfit was clean? I don't know. Who knows? That was the question. That was the answer. And then we carried on. It sucked all the air out of the room for about 15 minutes, but there it was. When I was at the uh, Champs-Élysées Film Festival a couple years ago, he gave a master class, which, by the way, I was desperate to go to because obviously he was there. I was desperate to go to, but I had to go see the James Franco uh, New Wave uh, New Wave homage, uh, The Pretenders, I think it was called. But he was there, and he's looking a little older. He's definitely turned the corner, which is very sad. Mm. But he's the great thing about him and other folks like you know Alec Baldwin, whatever. They're just priceless. They can show up in a scene for four seconds, and somehow they just they just light a fire in that scene just by the fact that they're just there. They're just so awesome. So Christopher Walken, I don't care if you're just doing cameos, sitting in a wheelchair. And reading one line of dialogue. As long as you're there, I'm happy. So we also have a Criterion release called Town Bloody Hall. Oh I, yeah, I, I remember I, that. I was 
Now, Tim, you're going to have to, to carry, carry because I knew nothing about this. This is a Chris Haggadis and D.A. Pennebaker doc. Well, Pennebaker shot at most of yeah. it and sort of stored it away, and Chris Haggadis sort of picked it up and put it all together. It's Norman Mailer uh, in the early 70s uh, engaged uh, in this, I guess you would call it a dialogue, with a whole bunch of feminists and other intellectual women, Jermaine Greer, Diane Trillinger, all of yeah. these people who were heavy hitters at the time. Um, uh, and Norman Mayer, of course, a, a famously macho you know, writer, you know, just north of uh, Hemingway or south, depending on your point of view. Um, uh, and of course, he gets into it. And it's a really interesting, mostly fight <laughs> that things happen. It's not really a discussion at all. There's a lot of intellectual um, um, heft being brought from both sides. But Norman Mailer gets a little uh, snotty and nasty and mean sometimes, and the girls oh give it back. Gosh. They take, they give as good as they get. It's it's really quite fascinating. So I guess the original, uh, there was it was more than three hours of footage, which Pennybaker shot and Hegget is cut down. Is that the, yeah. the, the, the drill? Yeah. Well, anyway. It's, About ten uh, years apart, because the stuff was in the, I want to say the early 70s. Uh, yeah, 71, Hegg- 1971. Okay. Yeah, and he did it in the late 70s. Or, 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 79. 79. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Well, anyway, uh, there is an audio commentary that was done in uh, 2004 with Chris Hegedus and Jermaine Greer. And uh, there's footage from a 2004 celebration of the film as well, which brought all the participants back together, except obviously for Norman Mailer, uh, but Dia Pennebaker and, uh, and certainly the, wi- the, uh, the women. Um, anyway, it's, it's, it's quite good. And then the last criterion is uh, the long-awaited Volker Schlondorf Blu-ray of uh, The Lost Honor of Katerina Blum. Uh, directed by Volker Schlondorf and Margareta von Trotta, um, which is sort of one of the, this is one of the seminal um, new German cinema films. Uh, it, it's from 1975, not exactly my favorite uh, new German cinema film. I'm not exactly keen on a lot of it, except for Fassbender, but um, it is it is very typical of those films, very typical of what they say about society, about fr- uh, German politics of the era. Um, you know, terrorism and a lot of the, the instability of post-war German society um, really uh, especially filtered through kind of a, a quasi-feminist lens. Uh, that's where you really get Von Trotta's influence in it. Um, primarily a Schlondorf film at the time, uh, but uh, Von Trotta's career really, really uh, shined after this as well. So Young Jürgen lo- now in that film. Yeah, yeah, yeah so good. Uh, not a lot by way of special features. Uh, there's just an interview from 2002 with both uh, Schlondorf and Von Trotta, and then an interview uh, from the same year with Jost Vacano, the cinematographer, who, of course, would do things like Dust Boat as well, or did Dust Boat in about a decade earlier, uh, up before 2002, but obviously after 1975. So anyway, there is that. I, I want to make mention, you guys, you, you all know about Andy Sidaris, right? Oh, you yeah. know who he is? Yeah. And Andy Sidaris is one of those guys who writes, directs, produces, acts in about 50 movies a year that all basically are the same thing. Him looking cool, surrounded by half-naked women, all of them with guns, shooting people. <laughs> um, these movies sell like like hotcakes to foreign territories at the American film market. They are all basically the same. And there are tons of them coming out now from Mill Creek. They're really a riot. They're a hoot. Mill Creek has a bunch of these. They've got fit, they've got fit to kill. They have hard hunted. You, you, you get you get all these these puns in the titles. Uh, they have the Dallas Connection, uh, Day of the Warrior, 
And lastly, return to Savage Beach, which has a great tagline, the big guns are back. And then, of course, you know, three women no, wearing no brassiers in T-shirts and tank tops with guns. Um, Andy Sidaris understands his audience. Yeah. I don't know that I need to actually outline the plot of any of these because really <laughs> they are they're all the same. Scantily clad women and Andy Sidaris with guns shooting people. Well, I remember, what you're buying. I remember being... I remember being attracted only by the titles. Like when I, like in the late 80s, when I heard that there was a movie called Hard Ticket to Hawaii, <laughs> I don't even know what it was about, but it just seemed really like pre Baywatch, sexy, cheesy, maybe it's cool kind of thing. And then, and then after that, he did a film called Picasso Trigger, which I never saw. But I remember thinking, God, Picasso Trigger. I don't know what that means, but it sounds cool. Sweet. Oh my goodness. And he rarely had anybody in these movies that I would ever recognize. It was pretty, these were very low budget, very cheesy, you know, beach yeah. films and True. adventure films that were just a bunch of no name actors in them. Uh, but he, he definitely had a thing. I, I don't know that he really deserves any sort of like, you know, reevaluation. <laughs> <laughs> you know? But God love him. He knows it. He knows where his bread is buttered and, uh, and he bakes it well. I made money um, reviewing those movies for 10 cents a word in the early 90s. <laughs> go away you put money so, in my pocket i love him we've we've got a 25th anniversary uh steelbook of clueless with alicia silverstone uh written and directed by amy heckerling basically um a a modern day adaptation of um emma um uh, how's this film age 25 years on guys it's funny. Come on, give me the program. And to me, yeah. it doesn't suffer from some of the problems of the films that came along, say, a decade early. Some of those John Hughes films that looked mm -hmm. at those relationships between boys and girls and the girls. You know, we, we've talked about some some reevaluation of some of those films. Uh, this one doesn't do that. It's a few years later. The director is Amy Heckler, a lady. Yeah. Uh, and so it's a cute, funny, sexy little film. But the girls are the bosses. Well, this was produced by Scott Rudin, who's been, it kills me that he's been around that long. Here's, here's the thing that occurs to me watching this film. Paul Rudd is a vampire. <laughs> I'm kidding. I kid you not. Paul Rudd looks the same in this movie as he does in Ant-Man. Yeah. As he does in the Avengers. What, what's the secret? He looks younger than Tom Cruise. Yeah. How, it, how, it, how, like Tom Cruise has aged more. It is bizarre. But, uh, you know, sometimes when you watch films like Clueless, even if the behavior of the kids sound kind of the same and some of the, you know, some of the phrases that were kind of invented for that movie, people still say sometimes when you look at films like that and you realize that they're where that they're using 10 pound cell phones or driving older cars, it does sort of date it a little. I mean, for, for someone like, for someone of my vintage, uh, it makes it nostalgic. Yeah. But for if you're if you're young and discovering it, that might be a little bit of an eye roller. But in terms of the experience of kids that age, I think it's pretty timeless. Mm. Not, not, a, not a bad summation. Uh, Paramount presents their ongoing uh, re-release Blu-ray series of classic Paramount titles. Has a volume seven out now. Airplane from 1980. Airplane exclamation point, which... Um, has kind of been rediscovered lately, uh, which I had I wouldn't have expected. I did watch this again. The um, uh, the jokes still totally work. There's stuff in this thing that I I think I missed the first 27 times I saw it. It's, it's kind so of, funny. It's so funny. 
and and so many of the lines feel like like they need to come back into the into the vernacular. Things like you know, boy, did I pick the wrong day to stop sniffing glue, and all the all that Lloyd Bridges stuff is still so damn hilarious. It's, it's well, amazing how funny he became Lloyd Bridges later in his career. From this, he got run on Seinfeld. You know, from being the sea hunt guy, he was the you know sexy sea hunt guy. By the time he gets to the back of his career, he's kicking Jerry Seinfeld's ass in those. It's go time. It's go time. I, I just think that nowadays, if if you showed a younger person that movie, they would think it's funny, but they would probably think it's just an hour and a half of dad humor, right? Yeah, because yeah. it is sort of like it's not, it's uh, it's silly in a clever way. So it seems kind of dad humorish, but at the time, it was a gut buster, and it's still very funny. And by the way, I still kind of, I still, I, I still will, will I, I still will die on the hill of Airplane Two, which was. Not as funny, but it still has one of the greatest side gags of all time with William Shatner. Oh, yeah. Um, that scene where yeah, he's oh, at the... Oh, uh, that's first behind scene the where, door. It's great. <laughs> behind the door. One of the great side gags. Um, but Airplane is just timelessly funny. The Zucker Brothers had a great run. They did a lot of great stuff. They did, you know, Naked Gun and Police Squad. and Kentucky Kentucky Fried Movie. That's of them, right? Yeah. 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 Which was pretty movie. cool. Yeah. Uh, that was when they were like kind of more underground and they were kind of waiting for their big break. You know, that was kind of it. Um, they're great. And this movie is very funny. So got a, got a bunch of movies here from the Warner archive. Two of these really kind of jumped out at me. Um, Clara's heart and Michael. Now Clara's heart with Whoopi Goldberg and Michael with John Travolta, because these movies seem to have completely fallen off of the, the, the wagon of history. I mean, Clara's heart. I had forgotten Whoopi Goldberg's obviously coming out of Color Purple. You know, she's been discovered. She's a comedian. She's funny. She can act. She's She can do it all. So they're trying to find more vehicles for her. I had entirely forgotten. This was directed by Robert Mulligan. Yeah. Like Robert, like Man in the Moon discovered Reese Witherspoon Mulligan. Like the directed Anne Bancroft to an Oscar in The Miracle Worker, Robert Mulligan. Like that that Robert Mulligan, he directed Clara's Heart. I'd forgotten about that. Yeah, Nick Neil yeah but this is like later Mulligan. Boy in that movie. Uh, you know what I love about that movie most is that oh. though she was taking care of the little white boy, she yeah. was a jazz Neil Patrick music- Harris. Neil Patrick Harris. Neil Patrick Harris. Yeah. She was a jazz music critic in that yeah. movie. And there were these beautiful sequences where she's writing and you're reading some of her, her criticisms. Just the, the whole idea of this black woman was this jazz music expert. But to make a living, she has to take care of this little kid. Uh, you know, the late Spalding Harris and Kathleen Quinlan. A lot of, a lot of really cool people. In that movie. It dates. It dates really well. Even though it's late, Robert Mulligan, you still feel that really, really humanistic touch. You know that he brought to Man in the Moon as well. Um, and then Michael, I had forgotten, which is Michael, which is a, a series of like there are like like five or six John Travolta movies that he made right after Pulp Fiction, where they suddenly all went over a hundred million. It was his. It was that late that that mid career surge that he enjoyed. And with you know he had been nobody for years. He'd fallen you know into B movie territory, and then suddenly Pulp Fiction comes out, and everybody wants to be a Travolta fan again. And they all made a hundred and some million dollars, and they were all not very good. Michael was directed by Nora Ephron. Yeah, I forgot about that. How did I forget that? Yeah. Karina, Karina, Karina. You know yeah. what? That, that Karina, Karina. That's where she was a jazz music critic. Anyway, whatever. Anyway, but yeah. Michael, yeah, actually, he was the angel. With the wings and the whole thing, right? Yeah, it's bizarre. This is such a weird movie. Um, 
such an odd movie. Anyway, yeah, it, it's it's a it's a it's a very peculiar movie. It doesn't quite work um, like a lot of Nora Ephron movies, but nonetheless, it's a Nora Ephron movie, and um, it's got a great soundtrack. And and John Travolta is just wonderful and luminous in it, and really? Andy McDowell and Bob Hoskins. I don't buy Travolta when he's trying to be sincere or romantic. I just feel like. I don't know what it is about Travolta. I feel like he's got one gear that really resonates with me. All of his other gears, I just don't buy it. <laughs> yeah. well, I, don't, I don't know. It depends on when you're talking about it. We go, go way on back, go all the way back to Saturday Night Fever. Young John Travolta, that guy. So that's you know just north of Vinnie Barbarino. Uh, but yeah. He's a really good dramatic performer. That's a really great dramatic performer. He, he does Vinnie. For a good chunk of that movie, but every now and again, he's just so good. So you fast forward, and you get to like those "Look Who's Talking" movies with, uh, yep. with Kirstie Alley, and he's playing, yep. you know, that guy, cab driver, pilot, and they get married and the baby. Okay, I thought he was really because that was not Vinny Barbarino. That was like this other guy, this sort of dad kind of guy. And then you know he goes away, comes back post uh, Pulp Fiction, and there's a run there where he plays these. Bad guys. What was that one he did with uh, Christian Slater? Um, oh, was that um, right? Was, that was John Woo, right? Was, was that, that John Woo? Woo? Yeah, t- Tommy yeah. Broken, Broken, Broken Arrow. Arrow. Broken Arrow. Broken Arrow. And he, he has this run of really good bad guys that he plays. And then he goes sideways with Battlefield Earth, and that's, you know, he's all gone after that. Well, uh, you know who else doesn't age? Friggin' Jennifer Lopez. Yeah. Selena. She looks the same now as she did in Selena. Yeah. No, she doesn't. Uh, let me tell you something. I bet you, and I, I've said this about other people before. I bet if like Jennifer Lopez came to you, like you know, in, in, in a bikini with no makeup on, you'd be like, "God damn, you're 50. <laughs> I gotta <laughs> tell you, oh, nah, you're fifty. Nah, not her. Uh, uh, for dude, one thing, uh, she gets naked a lot. Um, uh, Selena. Now I know it's with good lighting and an excellent cinematographer, but she gets naked a lot. Uh, what was the one? The Hustlers. That, that little yeah. thing at the top yeah. of the this, this last year. Fun. Um, the, guy, the guy, I hate to say this, but this is, this is such a droppy thing, but the guy who does my hair, it's hard to believe that yeah. actually I have a guy who does my hair. He's the same guy I've been going to for 20 years because I'm so lazy. I don't want to find anybody else. Plus, uh, he always has funny stories. He does Jennifer Lopez's hair. Yeah. Uh-huh. And so he, uh, and you know, she, he tells stories about her and what a wonderful person she is. Oh, boy. Um. <laughs> But he does say that she really tries, man. She works out constantly. She works it as best she can. She knows she's got about seven and a half minutes left until she turns the corner, which is the fate of all humans. So it's okay. Um, but she is gifted in that way. And she works at it, at it really hard in order to extend her shelf life in those sexy movies. But uh, she really has not felt the need to play the mom yet. Well, good for her. You know? so, so that's Selena, also from a Warner Archive collection. There's a documentary on uh, on here about uh, Selena, which is important because it obviously contextualizes it. And then there's a do- a, a featurette about uh, the making of Selena. Um, so you know, after ten years after the fact, uh, I still think it's a sharp little Gregory Nava movie. I'm glad he did it. Yeah. Um, and then uh, we've got Pride and Prejudice, a very early version of Pride and Prejudice. Uh, starring Lawrence Olivier and Greer Garson, not really. Uh, it doesn't. It doesn't date terribly well. It feels like a like an early Hollywood, uh, you know, nineteen forties era adaptation of it. it. It's exactly what you would expect. It's very, very kind of um, 
Hollywood glossed up, clearly was shot in studios and, and sound stages. But you know what? It's a nice little artifact. It's Greer Garson and Lawrence Olivier. You can't exactly dismiss them. So um, many versions of that movie, of that story. So many. And I prefer the, you know, the most recent one, obviously. Uh, there's also John Steinbeck's Cannery Row, which was done into a Deborah Winger and Nick Nolte movie. We talked about Deborah Winger last week and the fact that her, uh, her performance on Wonder Woman as Drusilla was absolutely the highlight of her career. Nonetheless, she's perfectly fine in this David S. Ward uh, written and directed movie. Um, Can Cannery Row was kind of a thing in 1982, wasn't it? I like yeah. that movie. Yeah, I remember the movie. Yeah. I liked it. It's good. Yeah. Yeah. Nick Nolte kind of in his prime. Deborah Winger really uh, getting up and uh, getting up on things. Um, three movies I want to talk about here right now, which you will both laugh at, and I obviously can't go into any greater detail as to why they they uh, they they are why we're laughing. But uh, the uh, the first one, well, two of them are Mickey Rooney and Judy Garland movies. One is Girl Crazy, the other is Strike Up the Band. Um, uh, Girl Crazy was directed by Norman Tarog. Uh, has a lot of great uh, Gershwin music in it, produced by Arthur Freed for his unit at MGM, and Strike Up the Band, directed by Tim Busby. Busby Berkeley. Yep. Mr. Yeah, Mr. Busby, Busby Berkeley, Berkeley. Stri strike up the band. Uh, and then the other one features Busby Berkeley numbers. It is Million Dollar Mermaid with Esther Williams, one yeah. of the uh, one of the, the big splashy uh, movies that sort of gave us synchronized swimming with some amazing Busby Berkeley choreographed stuff in it. These are absolutely lovely transfers. Wonderful, wonderful transfers. I want to say Million Dollar Mermaid's uh, colors, uh, they will pop on Blu-ray like I've never seen. Forget about HDR. I know HDR and 4K is supposed to be sort of the state of the art. I, I cannot believe how beautiful this looks. I cannot believe what an amazing job they did. It's really, really, really just um, incredibly pristine. Um, it features all kinds of uh, fun stuff, in it, uh, uh, including a classic uh, cartoon, The Wise Little Quacker. <laughs> har 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 um and then there's uh an uh, an audio only bonus radio show that includes esther williams and uh walter pigeon and then uh girl crazy is not exactly the the uh the the best of the judy garland mickey rooney films it's cute it's clever uh they're kind of doing the same shtick they've done before but strike up the band the busby berkeley one is absolutely fantastic absolutely was, was busby a, a co-director or, or something director uh, girl crazy too uh, he was involved in Girl Crazy, and uh, and uh, I, that's a whole different story that we don't actually have time to, to <laughs> try to, to get into. That's that's a, yeah. There, there's drama there involved as well. But a, a Strike Up the Band is uh, is really it's one of the films. You know, he he worked first at Warner Brothers, and they, or before that, obviously he did. You know, uh, with Sam Goldwyn. But Warner Brothers is where he made a lot of the most famous films. Then migrated to MGM. He eventually went back to Warner Brothers, but. This is one of the films he made at MGM, and he started with the Rooney and the Garland films. And, uh, you know, they were a thing because of the, the, the they hadn't done any musical films yet. But then he came over and made their movies musical, and uh, Strike Up the Band is one of those. And they're great. I mean, you forget what an amazing talent Mickey Rooney was. Mickey Rooney is one of the most talented people in the history of movies. We think of him, obviously, as the guy who does that horrible Japanese impersonation. Yeah, in, uh, Breakfast of Tiffany. Right. In Breakfast at Tiffany's, and and then who became kind of a strange, creepy old guy, and you know, uh, Dana Carvey makes fun of him on SNL. I was the biggest star in the world, but Mickey Rooney was, as a kid, unbelievably talented on a level that is almost incomprehensible. He could dance, he could sing, he could play piano, he played drums, 
man did he play drums yeah i mean he beats those skins like nobody's business in some of those movies mickey rooney at age 19 is like the complete package it's really kind of astonishing and he stayed famous his entire life he did what he stayed famous his entire life. He oh, did. he does. That's true. Yes. yes his acting career even uh, rejuvenates in the, the the time of television. One of the best oh, Twilight Zones, I guess it is, is a Mickey Rooney Twilight Zone. Uh, I think it's called Big. Uh, oh, yeah, you're that. right. It's, it's just a wonderful, wonderful. So, you know, yeah, you hung around the whole damn time. Good on you, Mickey. And then the last two Warner Archive titles here. Uh, one, I'm going to go through this fairly quickly. This is kind of a, a standard a Warner Brothers program, a romance on the high seas uh, with uh, Car Jack Carson, Janice Page, Don Fiore, and Doris Day. And uh, frankly, this is just kind of a Doris Day vehicle, and it's really kind of like an early version of, uh, of The Love Boat. It's got some Busby Berkeley stuff in it. Busby Berkeley did the did the numbers in this one. Not one of his more memorable films. Um, it's uh, it, the only you know it, 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 the Epstein brothers wrote it, but they're kind of phoning it in a little bit. Mm. Uh, Izzy Diamond, longtime Billy Wilder collaborator, uh, came in and did some additional dialogue. Uh, but it's basically just it's a fun, lovely Michael Curtiz directed um, uh, love boat episode. You know, decades before Love Boat. That's basically what it is. And it's perfectly fine. It's um, It really kind of tells you what they were positioning Doris Day to be. She was she was supposed to be, you know, the girl next door, the, the very chaste girl next door who wasn't a sex pot. She was just really sweet and lovable. And they wanted to kind of carve her out a place that was different from all the femme fatales of the era. And uh, she did it beautifully. The last one, talk about this for a second. Alfred Hitchcock's Dial M for Murder, 3D. Yeah. Uh, on Blu-ray. Um, the, uh, I saw this in school and I remember thinking, you know, you, with, with, we didn't see it in 3d. We saw it, obviously you could tell it was shot for 3d, all of the stuff that's supposed to give you a sense of perspective. And I remember thinking it's a little bit like rope in the sense that it's Hitchcock experimenting with universal's money, uh, or at the time Warner brothers money and, um, you know, not really pulling it off, but why not? Somebody's given him a budget. He's going to take a risk. Who else did that? Yeah. Who else took risks like that with other people's money? In 1954. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. It's a pretty, pretty, pretty neat movie, I think. Ray Milan, Grace Care. Um, I like that score. Dimitri uh, Tiomkin. Tiomkin, yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, as opposed to... Uh, but I, I remember that. It was pretty good. You know yeah. what? I, I, I bet, even though it's considered not top-shelf Hitchcock, I, I bet if, you, if this movie was directed by anybody else, you would think it's amazing. Probably true. But because of Hitchcock and knowing who, who he is, you know, don't forget like Hitchcock was like a name brand director back when that didn't even really exist. He was a name, he was like he was a recognizable face. He had a show where he would appear and he, he would cameo in his movies. He was a name brand director in a way that we now are used to with the Tarantinos and the JJs and the whatever. But back then they didn't really do that. He was kind of one of the first real name brand directors. And so, you know, the bar was always very high. So Dial M for Murder, which, by the way, I I, I defend, as, 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 along with Rope, by the way, I defend Rope as a movie, not just as an experiment. I like it a yeah. lot. Um, it is a bit of an experiment, but I but I just think because it's Hitchcock and maybe he was a little off his game, you people are not universally loving it. But if, if it had anybody else's name on it, you think it was great. Yeah. Well, it is it is a really interesting, tight, claustrophobic film. It's Love Triangle, basically, Grace Kelly with uh, Robert Cummings and Ray Yeah, she's great. She is terrific. 
and they and and to their credit, Warner Archive said, you know what? It was done in 3D. We know that 3D televisions are no longer being produced. That it was a flash in the pan. But they they mastered this for 3D televisions. So anybody who still has a 3D television, uh, a Blu-ray 3D television, this may be one of the very last actual uh, 3D Blu-rays that you are you're going to get for it. Probably the last catalog title for it. So kudos to the people at Warner Archive. They did a great job on all of this stuff. Uh, really, really fun stuff. And uh, so glad to see them exploiting the Busby Berkeley uh, catalog. Really glad. Uh, in any case, guys, I think that wraps it up for us. All right. Mark was, was here. Show. Mark was here. Thank you, Mark. Mark in the house. <laughs> Mark in the house. Wade, uh, Mark- Wade and Tim, anytime you guys want to have me back to talk about yeah. documentaries no one will ever see, please <laughs> contact me. Well, uh, and now we will uh, wrap the show out with a uh, with a, my pre-recorded anime segment. And uh, Tim, we we are also going to do an, an intermediate show. We're going to resurrect an old interview that has new relevance uh, in the next week or so as well. Did you want to plug that by any means? Uh, 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 producer friend of ours, interview we did a while ago. Neil Cohen, Zach Norman, wonderful actor director that people will know. Look up Zach. They made a movie called Chief Zabu. Uh, in 1986, and it took them about 35 years to reconstruct that movie, find it, and release it. And it's now streaming every place. It's so funny. Uh, and it is just uh, so a part of the contemporary zeitgeist of the day. Uh, let's just say Trump and things like that uh, play a part. Uh, very, very funny. So we'll reprise that interview and talk about that movie a little bit. We will do that in the next uh, in the next week or so. So uh, in the meantime, everybody stay safe, be well, and uh, here is my pre-recorded segment on anime to close out the show. We have not talked about anime for uh, a number of months, and uh, that's just been one of the tra- one of the uh, the casualties of the fulfillment issues that we have been facing. But a lot of this is slowly normalizing. So for anime fans. We've put a, put together a little segment here. I've spent uh, the last few days going through a lot of the anime that we've received, and there's a lot of great stuff here. An anime for given how how what a what breadth it has, uh, what a diversity of content, and how long some of these seasons run. If you are getting bored during quarantine and and lockdown, and uh, getting tired of no new product out there, and you are an animation fan, or especially an anime fan, there uh, there are binge-watching opportunities galore with all of this. Um, I want to start off with uh, a couple of the, uh, the a lot of the Funimation stuff, some of the standalone, really great Funimation titles uh, that have gone on forever. And there are entire universes here that just uh, never, ever seem to end, and they, they just give their, uh, their writers and their ar- artists endless opportunities for creativity. Uh, one of them is One Piece, the, uh, the, 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 the pirate fantasy adventure, which is now in season 10. This is season 10, Voyage 1. This is not on Blu-ray. This is only on DVD. Uh, but it, uh, it continues to be really imaginative and really, really enjoyable. This has special features, uncut and unedited. These are episodes 575 to 587 on two different DVDs. And um, it's, uh, it's just it's loaded with lots of really, really fun stuff. Somehow, after 10 seasons, they are, they are still able to maintain the, uh, the, the enjoyment factor. Uh, similarly long is uh, Fairy Tale. And this is a Blu-ray and DVD uh, combo set 
of the final season of Fairy Tale, which has just been endless. This is uh, volume 23 overall, if you've been keeping up with this. And uh, it's, uh, it, it, it is more the same. It's probably less inventive and imaginative than One Piece overall, but it's not designed to. It doesn't skew quite as young as One Piece. And uh, this, is, uh, this takes uh, the Fairy Tale Guild into all kinds of uh, new areas for their very, very last adventure. And uh, there's no reason to sort of go into any of the details. If you've, if you've watched this from the beginning, uh, then you know exactly what to expect. Uh, what is particularly interesting is uh, is a new one to me, Bungo Stray Dogs. And Bungo Stray Dogs is uh, basically a combination of noir and uh, supernatural adventure. It's, superna- it's like noir detective meets supernatural adventure. It's really very clever. It's beautifully drawn, really incredibly well drawn, and very imaginatively conceived this entire world. Um it, it, I mean, the costumes and the backgrounds and the colors and a lot of the other the other stuff they do is very interesting. This is now in season three. Um, always, always a villain in there. It reminds me a little. There's a little bit of kind of a steampunky quality, wild, 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 uh, wild, wild west to it. Um, uh, if if you kind of if you're familiar with that show, uh, but boy, it's really, really interesting and uh, it it grabs you. Even if you're not fully caught up on the first two seasons, you'll thoroughly enjoy it. And if you do buy season three on Blu-ray and DVD, you might want to also invest in the Blu-ray DVD combo set Bongo Stray Dogs Dead Apple, which is like a prequel to uh, season three. It's a movie, it's a feature, and it leads into season three. So it, uh, it gives you a much more expansive storyline. Very, very interesting. Um, really, really cool is uh, Million Arthur, the complete series. Million Arthur is uh, one of those feminist adventure uh, sagas that is centered kind of around the Arthurian legend of Excalibur. And uh, it, it, takes the, uh, it takes the whole idea into a completely new area, which is interesting. Um, it, it, it's more about the sword than it is any of the Arthurian legend stuff that, that is centered around it. But it does all go back to England, and uh, it, it sort of tries to, to reinvent it in an anime way that is pretty cool. And it's, uh, it, it goes in places you wouldn't expect it to. So it shows that there's a lot of life left in the Arthurian legends. Um, some of the best artwork I have yet seen in any anime over the last 15, 20 years is Fairy Gone. Fairy Gone, spelled just like it sounds. This is the beginning of it, season one, part one. And uh, this is from, if you'd ever seen Cells at Work, this is the, uh, the, the same director as all that. And uh, this is about um, people, former government soldiers, who are able to uh, summon fairies to, um, to do their bidding for them. It's, it's, uh, it, it's, it's really, really cool. And uh, it all takes place in kind of a post-apocalyptic fantasy alternate future and, and alternate uh, environment. And uh, the idea is also that it is possible to be a, an unlicensed um, summoner of fairies and uh, to do so illicitly and against the government. That's a kind of an adaptation of the old uh, issue of weapons under the shoguns in Japan. So they've adapted that idea to this uh, this kind of uh, cool post-apocalyptic um, fantasy environment. 
It's really, really beautiful, and uh, I cannot wait to see where this goes. You are going to want to watch all 12 episodes of this. This is just a brand new anime saga. It doesn't require a, a great deal of uh, getting up to speed. It's beautifully done in every conceivable way. Uh, kind of cute is The Ones Within, which is a complete series uh, kind of, that kind of skews young. This is all uh, oriented toward the obsession of gaming and streaming with, uh, with young kids, presumably young kids, especially in Japan, and uh, gets into the whole uh, you know Ready Player One kind of thing where you live in the game or you're transported into a game. We can go back as far as Tron to talk about that. Uh, it, it's, uh, really just kind of, uh, wish fulfillment, digital youth kid wish fulfillment stuff. Nah, not for all tastes, uh, but if, if you have really, really young kids, it might, uh, might play to them. Uh, also kind of oriented toward young girls is Mix Mise Story Part 2. If you caught Part 1, it's more of the same. Twelve episodes here. Um, one of them with a commentary. It's, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's high school stuff. It, it, uh, it, it's basically a sequel to a 1985 manga about baseball, uh, that was called Touch. And, um, it, uh, it's high school baseball championship and, uh, and politics and everything else. It's, uh, it is what it is. It's a very particular genre and it's, uh, only for certain acquired taste. Uh, Black Clover, which feels like it's been around forever. This is season two, part five. And again, more of the same basically here. Uh, it's it's um, the Wizard King and all of the uh, the palace and political intrigue that centers around him and his his team of knights. And uh, it is it is feudal and it is medieval and it is anime and it's uh, kind of fantastic and it's otherwise pretty much like all the rest of that stuff that you've ever seen. Uh, we also have You Know, a uh, parts one and two of A Girl Who Chants Love at the Bound of This World. I don't know where they come up with these titles, but that's it. You Know, Y-U hyphen N-O, uh, subtitled A Girl Who Chants Love at the Bound of This World. This is parts one and two. Some will obviously remember this as a, uh, a game. This was a, like an, a, a digital adventure game from the mid-90s. Uh, basically about someone looking for their parents uh, between alternate dimensions. Kind of a, definitely a fantasy adventure, youth wish fulfillment. Uh, lots of interesting twists and turns. Does get a little bit confusing at times, but otherwise extremely well done. So that might be worth a look if, uh, if, that's, your, if that's your vibe. Uh, we've also got uh, Dumbbell. How heavy are the dumbbells you lift? The complete series. Uh, again, based on a manga and uh, kind of uh, routine youth comedy stuff. This is about a, uh, a girl who, who uh, can't stop eating, so she joins the gym and uh, the, enter the, the athletic competition. We've obviously, this stuff goes for baseball and basketball and, and swimming, and they have, you know, all kinds of sort of athletic-oriented stuff. This is one of the funnier ones. It's not really about athletic competition. It's sort of, again, youth, uh, teen politics, but it's cute and uh, intermittently funny. A uh, complete series of Copcraft. This is, again, also noir-influenced and, uh, and very interesting. This is uh, not based on a manga, but actually a light novel. Uh, and uh, it, it, it takes place in kind of a, um, a mystical, magical, uh, alternate world 
that uh, has a connection to the Earth. There is there's like this existential link between the two of them, and so you get uh, all kinds of magical creatures that come from the other world to the Earth and back and forth. We now have this this kind of stargate between the two, and that means that you get crime going between the two. And so now there's a there's a whole new uh, noir element to uh, to uh, detective work and to uh, to uh, police work between the two worlds. Um, very interesting idea, very well executed, a lot of really, really great artwork, uh, complete series. Don't know why it, uh, it didn't last longer, but, it, here it is in one fantastic Blu-ray set, Topcraft, the complete series. Uh, we also have, uh, the, the rather spectacular complete series of, uh, Kochoki, which is basically a mythical feudal coming-of-age story of a young uh, warlord heir and his brother and their team as they fight for what is rightfully theirs. Uh, all very nicely done. Obviously not for all tastes, um, but it's, uh, it, it's good. Uh, and then we, uh, wrapping out the Funimation stuff, we'll start with a complete series of Demon Lord Retry which may or may not be the complete series because of the way that it ends, which is actually kind of amusing. Uh, so there very could well be, might well be spin-off series and, uh, and other things. But in any case, Demon Lord Retry is, um, is, or, or is a, a more kind of uh, adventure-oriented to, uh, to gaming and people who love gaming and uh, trying to bring that, uh, add an extra dimension, all of that, uh, that adventure. Uh, this thing has quite a following on manga, and uh, it's it it's kind of a I guess a big deal. If you know all of the other incarnations and permutations of it, it probably makes a lot more sense. Uh, but as, as strictly judging from the anime show, um, it, you really kind of have to be a gamer. You really got to kind of be into into gaming and uh, immersing yourself in those worlds generally to really really appreciate it. Uh, Legend of the Gana of the Galactic Heroes. Uh, season two is um, a, I had to go back and revisit season one to kind of fill in some of the blanks. Uh, it's pretty narratively dense, uh, and it does require uh, obviously keeping track of a lot of characters and a lot of politics. This is all Galactic Empire stuff. This is kind of in the same vein as Star Blazers and and a lot of the subsequent shows that deal with um, kind of Star Wars ish. Uh, inter intergalactic empires and galactic wars and so forth. It's all of that same kind of politics, free planets, alliance, and uh, all of the things that go on between them. Uh, again, if you if you don't have season one, it's going to take some time to to get up to speed here. So I would recommend that you not sort of pick this up with season two. You would start with season one. Uh, we've talked about Strike Witches before. We have the complete series of Strike Witches now in a single Blu-ray set. Uh, Skew's pretty young. But uh, adults can watch it too. You can certainly enjoy it with your with your kids. Uh, there's some there's some fun stuff and some 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 cute comedy that goes on. The artwork is fine. Uh, really, but it's it's even you know skews younger I think even than the Pokemon set. Uh, ensemble stars, more fantastic teen politics with the uh, with this private school uh, that teaches young boys how to become pop stars. It's one of the silliest ideas I've ever seen, but somehow it manages to be kind of funny and entertaining, and I'm sure it's a, it's a huge hit among uh, Japanese kids, and it'll probably take off here as well. I'm sure this is a hit in, in Korea, too, where boy bands are all the rage. They're a little bit less the rage 
uh, in the United States now, but I'm sure there's uh, there's still enough fuel for that fire. Uh, and that's basically it. It's it's uh, like all the sports competition and the young showbiz competition shows, except it is uh, it's that's it's oriented toward uh, young pop stars. Um, uh, kind of uh, in the anime vein, from Wellgo is this wonderful movie called A Dog's Courage, which uh, just came out recently and uh, got no theatrical exposure, obviously, given our, our uh, pandemic moment. But um, good on Wellgo for, for picking this up and bringing it out. Uh, this is basically about a, um, a dog named Jacob who uh, is abandoned and winds up becoming a leader of this uh, team of strays on this fantastic adventure that really has uh, all kinds of wonderful little uh, narrative twists and turns, and the characters, all each one of these strays is delightfully done. The voice work is, is terrific. Um, it's really, really, really worth checking out. This is Korean animation, so we should point out it's not... Japanese animation it's Korean animation but it uh, it kind of belongs to the the overall anime umbrella that's the audience that it is targeting and uh, it does so beautifully uh, Korean animation obviously is not a new thing a lot of the early work for uh, shows like The Simpsons and uh, a lot of other stuff in the United States was done by Korean animators so there is a very strong and long and proud tradition of animation uh, in Korea, and uh, when they do their own animation, it is it is equally impressive. Um, they, they, there's, there's a lot of really great animation talent in Korea. Also, uh, some from Shout Factory, who keeps giving us all kinds of really, really great uh, anime, courtesy of G-Kids. I uh, got a couple things here. Ride Your Wave is just so beautiful. This is from the uh, legendary director Masaki Yuasa. And it includes wonderful, wonderful extras, uh, all kinds of uh, storyboards, and and uh, there's an interview with a um, uh, with one of the producers, who is Korean. Again, we should point out. Um, and uh, the story here is about a, uh, a a surfer, basically, a college student who loves surfing, and who has this uh, wonderful romance while living in a small seaside town where he has just moved. And then something horrible happens, and um, something magical happens. And I'll, I'll give you nothing beyond that, but it winds up going from what seems like just sort of an ordinary coming-of-age teen adventure into something mystical and magical and existential and philosophical. And that, of course, opens up all kinds of artistic opportunities, which are amazing, just absolutely amazing. Um, I could almost see this being uh, equally great as a live-action film, but it isn't for now. It's Ride Your Wave. It is an absolutely beautiful uh, work of anime from the great director uh, Masaki Yuasa. Also from Shout Factory is uh, Promare. Now, Promare was the top anime feature theatrically in 2019. Shout Factory and G-Kids want to make sure you understand that. And they've released this both in a regular Blu-ray DVD combo set with uh, a couple of short film prequels and interviews and all kinds of interesting little extras, which is plenty for most people. And if you're really, really hardcore, you're going to want to get the, the bigger, heftier, limited collector's edition, which is enormous and it has all of the other stuff plus the cd soundtrack a 52 page booklet uh, the original script uh, translated into english a poster and uh, a decal sticker if that's meaningful for anybody it's a pretty big deal 
so for hardcore anime fans, this is really, really a big thing. Um, this is uh, basically a uh, another epic journey uh, in the Joseph Campbell mode, as you find very frequently in anime, which represents kind of the second stage of this epic war between two different mutant tribes uh, many decades after it began. Uh, the Burnish are the are the bad guys here, and they they invaded the Earth, and they they they're pretty scary, and uh, obviously lots of great artwork opportunities in there as well. Anyway, uh, and the uh, the messianic figure here is uh, Leo Fotia, who leads Mad Burnish, which is the anyway. I won't get into politics of it, but it's very very interesting. Uh, it's extremely artistic and well conceived, and uh, it's worth checking out. It's Promare in both a regular edition and a collector's edition, a limited collector's edition. That's loaded loaded with stuff, including a fifty two page booklet. The uh, third G-Kids and Shout Factory title here is a kind of a famous one. Uh, Satoshi Khan, one of the all-time great gods of the Japanese anime pantheon, made a uh, one of the more popular uh, anime films of the last 20 years with Tokyo Godfathers. And that is now out in an absolutely beautiful Blu-ray and DVD collection, a, a set, single set, Blu-ray DVD combo set, with a brand new 4K base transfer. Now it's Blu-ray, not a 4K, but it's taken from a 4K scan of the original elements. A new English dub, brand new, beautifully done, great voice work, as well as Satoshi Khan's uh, short film. There's a short film here, uh, a making of featurette, featurette on it, a sound mixing featurette, and then uh, kind of a behind-the-scenes featurette that's a little bit different from the from the making of featurette. Um, and lots of other stuff. Anyway, Tokyo Godfathers, absolutely uh, terrific, beautiful film. Uh, probably not for all tastes, but it really, it, it's, it's funny and it's touching, and uh, it goes in places you don't necessarily expect it to go. It's a really, really uh, very, very timely story that uh, follows three homeless people in Tokyo who find a baby girl in a garbage dump on Christmas Eve. It's a little bit of Three Men and a Baby. It's a little bit of The Fisher King. Um, it's, uh, it's a little bit of uh, It's a Wonderful Life. It's all, sort of all of those things uh, wrapped together, and it goes in places you just don't expect it to go. It's really a, a very, very beautiful film. Again, it has uh, the behind-the-scenes and making of featurettes, an interview as well with uh, the actress Shakina Naifak, and uh, a terrific introduction from the Deputy Director of Film for the Japan Society in New York City. So, uh, Tokyo Godfathers from G-Kids and uh, Shout Factory is wonderful. Just a, a few more here. We also have from uh, the, uh, the terrific people at Sunrise and Write Stuff, another Gundam entry. Again, Gundam is maybe the most expansive universe ever created for film or television, including anything with Marvel anything to do with uh, with Star Wars, anything to do with Star Trek, nothing remotely uh, approaches Gundam. This is After War Gundam X, and Gundam spans thousands of years and more light years in the universe than anybody has any business even trying to, to, to calculate. It is, of course, a, a it is mecha-oriented. It belongs to the mecha subgenre of anime, and this takes place in what is kind of an alternate timeline to the, the Gundam universe. It's a little hard to keep track of, but all you really need to know about this one is that it takes place after many years after a horrible, devastating war, 
and kind of a post-apocalyptic uh, moment when they're trying to rebuild and hopefully rebuild without um, without triggering all of the the political and tribal conflicts that uh, that arose the first time, which of course they naturally do. Otherwise, there's no drama, and um, it, uh, it it it's 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 pretty great. Once you kind of wrap your head around where this fits in the Gundam timeline. Um, and, and how it relates to the other half dozen or so series that preceded it. Pretty great stuff. Pretty great stuff. So that is from uh, Right Stuff Anime. You can go to uh, rightstuffanime.com. Uh, and uh, this is via the Sunrise Library. That is After War Gundam X. And lastly, two installments in the series Aria, Aria the Natural and Aria the Origination. Uh, these are uh, these are really really sweet, kind of very very engaging uh, stories. This is uh, Aria the Natural is part two. Aria the Origination is the whole series in one set. These are from the uh, Nozomi catalog and uh, distributed by Section Twenty Three here, as is uh, all of the Sente stuff. We'll be covering a lot of Sente in a future episode. But uh, Aria the the uh, Aria stuff is based on manga again, as usual. And uh, it takes place on the planet Aqua, which is the futuristic, many hundreds of years in the future, planet Mars, now that it's been terraformed and turned into a wa- basically kind of a, an almost very, very lush water planet. And if you haven't seen it, it's worth mentioning that there have been, there's been modeling, computer modeling of what a terraformed Mars would look like, where the oceans would be, where the continents would be, where the islands would be. Um, this is very, very cool stuff. If you want to look at it online, and you'll see... This is not so far off. The Aria stuff is not so far off. Imagining a predominantly uh, water-governed futuristic Mars. Mars would have uh, substantially more water in a ratio compared to land masses uh, than Earth does. It's, it's quite extraordinary. Uh, so uh, this, because of that, everything is sort of Venetian in the future. Gondolas, and it's like, it's like a new version of Venice, and it centers around the... Uh, the company of the namesake uh, Aria, the, the Aria company, is a uh, is a is basically a, uh, a water uh, gondolier company, and um, it's it's about this girl uh, Akari um, Mizunashi who uh, who wants to work her way up, and and you know she's just arrived on the planet, and it's it's uh, her adventures and relationships and and all that stuff. Um, it's not. Uh, it's not overly fantasy oriented. It's not too sci-fi ish. It's not mecha. It's not. Uh, it doesn't have any of those those things. It's just very, very sweet and humanistic. And it's uh, kids can enjoy it. I think young adults and adults can all enjoy it. it. Aria is really kind of unique in the world of anime at the moment. So, uh, with that, Aria the Natural Part Two and Aria the Origination, all of it on Blu-ray from Nozomi via Section Twenty Three. Really, really worth checking out. Thanks for listening to this week's show, uh, and uh, we will be back with uh, a, a rather unique and novel show next week. Hope you enjoy it. Take care.